Hello, welcome to Social Work Made Accessible. I'm Dominic. I'm Rachel. Join us in this podcast where we have conversations exploring our profession, the practice, and people's perspectives. Welcome everyone. So today, if you can hear a difference, I hope you hear a difference because we got mics. Indeed, we did. Okay, so um, following up from our last conversation, I think we did talk a little bit about this whole idea of like uh, equilibrium and I think we also alluded to this idea of inequality, if I recall. Yep. Okay, so today, the topic that we have is that we're actually discussing the 2018 publication of This Is What Inequality Looks Like, which is quite crazy actually when I realised that this book, or at least these ideas have been floating around in the Singapore thought space for at least two years. And I hope that it's not too late to revisit um, these conversations again. Mm. So in case uh, nobody knows what this book is about, if you haven't heard about it, it's basically... Uh, a series of essays by uh, NTU sociologist, Dr. Tio Yuyen. Um, I think there was quite a lot of positive reception in general from, I'm not so sure about in the social work sphere, but I know at least uh, amongst a lot of young people, I think. Uh, I did go for one conference and there were a lot of young faces in that conference. Uh, yeah, so first of all, I think the cover is great. If you have the old copy, in terms of like what it's trying to illustrate through the story and the, the cover, it's, it's really good. Yeah, so today what we'll be doing is that we'll be going through the preface. We'll also be going through the first essay. So they're meant to be a series of separate essays. And we'll also mm. be interacting with some other um, people who have contributed to that conversation to see how we can have a robust and more, um, I wouldn't say differentiated, but at least uh, have different opinions come into play so that we can hopefully have a more, um, yeah, more thorough thought, thought process. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, Dominic, do you remember what you read in this book? So, I don't know. I think every single time I read it, very different things stand out to me. I'm quite excited to actually go through this and to see what new discussion points that we can come up with. Dom, maybe just share with me, when you read this book, what kind of headspace are you in when you read the book? Like, are you reading it as Dominic, the person, like just Dominic? Or are you reading it as Dominic, the social work student? Dominic, the to-be social worker? Okay, I think the first thing that I read, when I read this book, I come from the perspective of Singapore citizen. Okay. Yeah. And I wonder to myself, what is the state of Singapore? Or at least, is this a different side of reality that I have not integrated into my views and my understanding of what Singapore looks like? Mm. So it's not really my occupation. It's just myself as an individual in such a society. Mm. Yeah. And of course, as I read about it, there are quite grandiose mindsets and then there are close to home anecdotes that are being shared. Mm. So I think I, I, I vary between that. Mm. So sometimes I'm thinking, okay, well, a sociologist in which we need to examine the structures. Sometimes I think to myself as a social worker. Mm. Yeah, so I think, I think that kind of um, mentality of what kind of uh, hat we're wearing when reading this book is kind of important, I think. Yeah, I think you, if you ask me, Rachel, as Rachel, simply as Rachel, um, it's very, it, not that it's very different, but I think I would have a slightly different um, reaction to, to when I read this book. There are some parts of the book, like what I said, like, like what you said, like, you know, these really grandiose ideas and then kind of wonder how does that fit into everything. And then at the same time, you kind of really resonate with some of the things that are being said uh, yeah, so I think it's a 
I would say it's quite a struggle. Not, I mean, not like a, not like I will give up reading a book or anything, but it's like a, a intellectual struggle in some way to kind of uh, reconcile what is happening. Who am I in my different hats in relation to all of these things? Yeah. So um, maybe just to go through, I think the I think the important thing about this book is that. Uh, in some way, what like what we're doing, but through a book, is to kind of bring these stories to light um, to people who might not normally have access to it. So even Yo Yu Yen herself kind of talks about how um, she has the privilege of being exposed to these stories by yeah by the role of being a sociologist and entering to their into their um, space, which she mm. normally would not have. Uh, that opportunity to yeah so mm. maybe just some of the quotes that I highlighted um, and uh, that I thought would be helpful to just briefly talk or to acknowledge at least so the point of this book is about acknowledging poverty and inequality which leads to uncomfortable revelations about our society and ourselves and this is about how once we see we cannot and must not unsee so it's almost as though there is She's hoping that by reading this, you will, f- you will have a sense of conviction that there's something problematic about um, where our society is at. And mm. uh, at the end of it, she kind of invites you to go beyond the common sense and, see, and for the reader to see themselves as part of the problem and potential solutions. Mm. And I think that is also where I wonder whether or not the book has uh, achieved that. Yeah. Maybe not in practical ways, but at least where where at least for you and me, where we're at, or at least for people who are listening, where are they at also if they've read the book? I mean this book is a call to action. Starts with the mind, right? Changes the mindset. Mm. How are you looking? Questions, how are you looking at society? Where are you situated in such a society? Mm. Do you also are you perpetuating such ideal uh, such ideas about perhaps the poor? Mm. Or maybe not yeah. even ideas, because I think sometimes ideas are even very subconscious. Like, mm. just by your behavior, uh, is it just normalizing this inequality, I think? Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, on page 10, she talks about how structural conditions of inequality in which people of varying class circumstances can do the very same things, but yet face very different outcomes. Yeah. yeah. So I think that is this uncomfortable, um, uncomfortable feeling when you read throughout the entire book. Right? And yeah. yeah. So uh, what is the, the diff between poverty and inequality? Okay, well, that's quite a hard question, but maybe I can just point us to what Teo Yen would say. Um, so she says a bit of the context was that inequality and poverty are urgent and global issues. They are topics that have received deep and sustained attention by academics, journalists, activists, policymakers, international governance institutions. Uh, I think this is where is she shows a little bit about the link, right? There's increasing recognition that the two issues are empirically linked and that state actions and inactions in tandem with corporate practices are crucial for intensifying or Im- ameliorating problems. So mm. while she doesn't directly answer the question, I think the difference here is that inequality is the gap within. Poverty is those that are at the bottom. That's how I would mm. understand or at least go about understanding this. And I guess the inequality is also how wide that gap is, right? Yes. Then the, the increasingly, the wider it gets, the increasingly problematic it gets. So I think it's to say that probably in all societies, there is inequality. There's always going to be some people who are um, 
poorer than others. Mm, yeah. So, well, yeah. if any academics hear this and you have a way more robust answer, please just write in and we will be glad to share this. Okay. So, in chapter one, chapter one is, is uh, titled, Step One, uh, Disrupt the Narrative. Okay. So, mm. perhaps, Dominic, maybe I just ask you, like, what, before we go into the chapter itself, what are some conceptions of um, the Singapore narrative that you have? Uh, be it, okay, so I feel like for narratives, right, there is also government narratives and there are also societal narratives. And sometimes we, uh, we either conflate the two together or we do not realize that actually we have somehow blamed one more than the other. I think there is a huge emphasis on individual responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I'm coming in with the angle that is, a, that is intentionally neutral because when I think about the narrative of human responsibility, if you are managing yourself to be outwardly mobile, that is a responsibility that you can attribute to yourself to say that, yeah, I'm a self-made man or I'm a, I worked for this. Mm. Yet at the other end of the spectrum, if you are not in an outward mo- outwardly mobile state, then similarly, human responsibility is at that level. The difficulty here then is, do we really, or is it really just all about human responsibility? What about you? I think, I guess this might be a subset of that sense of responsibility, but I think I am wrestling with like the importance of education uh, for mobility. Yeah, like I really struggle with, um, you know, whether or not our education system is fair and it is open for everybody. Mm. So I think that's one of the narratives that the government is trying to push, right? Um, and I do think they do try to put make effort to make different kinds of programs that suit different people. Uh, mm. But at the same time, I really struggle to see whether or not it's the only way to work upwards to get educated well. Um, because I think to start a business in today's context is also very different from starting a business, let's say, in the 50s or 60s. Yeah, that ho- even that whole idea of being self-made is also very, I think it's very different now. Because we live in a mm. digital world, we live in uh, yeah, just a space that's so different from what it was a few years before. Yeah, so that, that's something that I struggle with. Like, should I compel people to be better educated? Um, yeah, because I believe that that helps with mobility. But then at the same time, like, people like us, right, we are a product of um, people who have at least made it somewhat in the Singapore education system. Like, yeah. like maybe we had our struggle. I could still pull through that. Yeah. So I really struggle with the fact that I am here because this system is set up in this way. And um, a lot of people have succeeded through that system. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we can look at some of like the narratives that, that she uh, talks about. So I think the I guess mm. I think before we go to that, I'm just wondering. I, I was just curious to know a bit more about like where this discomfort with the education system comes from. Because from my perspective, I do think that it is extremely necessary still. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify what, what do you mean by like where does that discomfort lie? I think the people who have been able to succeed in the system have either have been given a lot of resources that allow them to at least meet that level of success. Uh, I talk for myself. I can't say for everyone else, but for example, when I say I'm bad at chemistry, or I'm extremely bad at e-math, or extremely bad at Mandarin, I always had tuition. It was not even like a, a second question as to whether or not I could get tuition. 
there wasn't like mm. a, oh, do you want to go and find out where you can get some academic support from somewhere else or like have... Uh, yeah, I just... So, so it's an inequality just within um, resources of education that allows you to have access maybe... Al- what What's the term that they use for it? Uh? I cannot remember. Alternate education? No, I don't think so. As in like supplementary? Like supplementary? Uh, yeah, maybe supplementary education. Yeah, and I feel like that is... I, even though I am a product of that, I feel like that does not really facilitate the whole purpose of education. <laughs> As in like, you know, it's really, it's, it's really like it becomes, uh, at least for things, okay, not for things like history and literature. For me, like those were things of enjoyment. But for things mm. like math, science, very little of it was really about learning and enjoying. And then like, you know, an assessment based on how much you were able to pick up. It's really like, you are really studying for this exam, this test, so that you can promote to the next level, so that you can have this certificate which reaches you to that next stage of life to go into the next institution. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it's that credentials attainment first and foremost. I don't know. I think I have a very different view on that because I find that uh, through my studies, although I'm not the best, definitely really not the best, I find that it was quite essential for me to develop for example, logic. So one thing that I'm actually really bad at is also math. Uh, and honestly, I look back and I wish I was good at it because it would open certain doors and uh, I guess help me to see the world in also a very different light. Mm-hmm. And I thought that um, that was actually essential. You felt like you learned logic through math or like... Yeah, yeah. Like when I think about engineering and it breaking down problems and then solving it one by one, I don't know. I felt I feel like that's a skill in which when I look at a friend who is able to do this very well, that's something that I might not necessarily have. And I guess the correlation is that he's extremely good at math. Yeah. So, so I'm not too sure whether it's a it's too huge of a statement to say that uh, math will allow me to have that. But it's more of the <laughs> it's more of like I think sometimes we just are not too sure what these subjects actually do to our brains. Yes. Okay. In the sense that yes. yeah, it may develop it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So now on hindsight. Like, I know mm. that there is that element of that. But I think as a student, like, the experience of going through that system was not so much about that, even though it may have helped me uh, develop some of these skills to a certain degree, even if I okay. didn't necessarily solve the question, right? Yeah. So, okay. yeah, but I think even then, so, but the step-by-step process or the amount of effort that it took for me to get to that logical place it probably mm. wasn't sufficient if I had just gone through the, syst- the school system solely. Like, I needed yep. that additional help. Like, I needed someone to sit next to me every Wednesday for two hours to go through with me the question for, like, the 10th time. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, I get that. And then then that's where you really ask the question, so what happens to people who do not have such opportunities? A- to exactly, right? yeah. Yep. Because okay. I would say, I I, I would say like, my fairly, my parents would not have been able to help me with those subjects. Yeah. yeah. So they therefore had to outsource um that help. Yeah, and outsourcing takes resources. Yeah. And if you do not have the resources, you don't have such access to Exactly. Yep, got in it. junior okay. college it gets even worse, guys. Thank goodness I didn't need any tuition in junior college. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So I think okay, I think the first very interesting one that she puts forward is about this whole idea of mobility. And she talks about mobility in a very um in a very literal way, not even about like class mobility or about um economic mobility she just talks about it in the very sense of uh moving from a place to from one place to another 
it's something that I really see as I work longer. Yeah, because I feel that um, if you were to say this in the context of if I was a student and I didn't have exposure to different people, like people who are different from me, I wouldn't have known about this. So I think that's on page 18, right? She kind of draws this yep. diagram of a, I don't know, what would you call this? A, it's not a flow chart, right? I don't know, what is it? Yeah, I think it's a movement chart. A movement Just, chart, yeah. Yeah, for one of the her interviewees. Yeah. Yeah. So they would go to the market, go to the post office, home, school, bank. It's a lot of very uh, functional kind of things to get the household moving, pay the bills, mm. uh, buy food, pick up the kids, go to the bank, yep. things like that. And when I compare yep. that to my own, if I were to chart my own movement, um, I mean, definitely I also go home and I go to work. Um, yeah. But there's also a lot of things about leisure that I think yeah. is very, may not be as frequently uh, seen in, in maybe some lower income families. I think when I read this, there's one idea that she puts forth, right? Which is like cities within cities. And I think that was the thing that struck me the most because it's true. Even in our work with our clients, I think a lot of them either do things or visit places because it's functionally required of them. Mm. Um, or secondly, they are just locked into either home or the closest amenities that are close by. Mm. But what strikes me the most is, is the whole notion of leisure, as you also brought up. I think it's scary when leisure becomes something that you require resources to partake in. Or re- not, not just resources, but like the, the thinking of whether or not you want to allocate the resource to that, I think. Yeah, exactly. It, because I think we come from a place and recognize how it's not like they have a lot in excess. Mm. And so leisure becomes extremely selective. Or even, right, if they had a little bit in excess and they were to choose that something that was uh, a leisure activity, then it kind of gets questioned also. I think that is something, yeah, yeah that's something that like, I realized that maybe I, I might have done before. It's uncomfortable to think about mm. it that way. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that people from lower income families don't partake in leisure. They definitely do. But I think um, how the conception of that, I think it's very different for, as compared to at least for a lot of young people nowadays mm. when they, you know, they meet mm. their friends, they go to a cafe. Uh, yeah, you just enjoy what you're eating and then you take a few pictures and then maybe next week you go to another cafe. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I think um, and this is, at the same time, I'm not bashing people who go to cafes because <laughs> I also go to cafes. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a very tricky thing, I feel. Like, because it's these two very different lives and then it's like we're living in parallel, you know, like you're living in the same time space, but like mm-hmm. the life is so different also. And yep. Whether or not yep. we have exposure to that. For example, I, I've ever met a client who has never been to Orchard Road in her entire life. And the only reason why we went to Orchard Road was because we had to go to the embassy. Uh, oh, okay. And yeah, so to me, my concept, my, I was blown. I was blown away that like someone has never been to uh, like Singapore's main uh, shopping belt. Yeah, mm. and, and she is Singaporean. Yeah. So, but at the same time, like, I, I asked myself, like, like, if you're not a social worker and you don't have access to someone's they don't have the opportunity to 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 relate to a person in the way that we do, right? And how do you how do you understand their world a bit better? Because it's not like it's not like there are people who are 
uh, it's not like a museum for you to go and like witness their lives, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's not also very fair. I think this is where a sense of irony comes in because the question that I would think of is in the way we view them, are we actually demeaning them? Which mm-hmm. means that, am I right to say that my form of leisure is better than their form of leisure? So I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, so I'm asking that in a general question mm. so it's not targeted at neither you or myself. Mm. But that's the whole thing about when we go overseas to do like CIP as well. Mm. One question that I thought of is who, are, who am I to tell them that their third world should become first? And who am I to say that their first world should look like mine? Mm. Yeah. Similarly, who am I to say that their leisure is insufficient and at the same time, who am I to then create a standard of leisure that people should attain to? So I feel that it's fair. So it sounds, it sounds like a very complex problem. <laughs> it sounds like, okay, at least for me, I feel a bit, not bad, but I feel like there is this, um, there's this disparity. And at the same time, you're saying to judge that disparity, it's also putting ourselves on a somewhat holier-than-thou uh, pedestal right so like how 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 do we resolve that tension yeah so for me actually i think it's resolved with one simple question and one hard posture the question is are you satisfied with your leisure if they say yes then cool i see dignity in that i see dignity in that satisfaction but if they say no which actually is more often than not that's the that's the answer because i'm sure many of them will say oh yes i would just love to visit uh, gardens by the bay which is free but the transport there is expensive. That is where I take issue with this whole notion of leisure because my thoughts is that it's, ex- it's really very sad that people cannot experience the common spaces in which Singapore has created for leisure just simply because of this intermediate um, lack. Yeah, and I think also the questioning that comes with if let's say they do choose to partake. Yeah. Like, perhaps asking... Uh, okay, I haven't really asked this question recently, at least. But, like, sometimes... Like, I think I, in the past, I admittedly have... Maybe not about leisure, but about, like... I think, uh, you know, sometimes you see the... There's, like, a lot of, like, online shopping. Then, you know, just, like... So, what do you buy, like, online? But, you know, for some people, like... I mean, okay, I think we do also judge our friends who buy a lot of things online. Or, like, maybe our moms. Like maybe some moms, you know, do a lot of online shopping and they buy a lot of random things for the house, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I think there's always some form of judgment in terms of how like money is used. Yeah, not even just about leisure and mobility. Yeah, like some sort of value that is placed on that lah. Yeah, and and. Uh, but okay lah, I think that's all right, right? Is it not? Like for example, you have to be wise with your money. Yeah, that that's true, but you know. I, I don't know whether or not people feel questioned for like how often they bring their kids to McDonald's. Like if they bring their kid once a week, like versus let's say if I'm a parent, I do bring my kid to McDonald's, but I bring my kid once a month, you know, like, so how, how do we qualify? Like what is enough of that same thing? And not that it's like, not that it's even super extravagant. It's not like, Oh, I bring you to like USS every week. And then I like bomb, like, but $250 for our family or five or something. I don't know how much USS costs, but yeah. Yeah, okay. I get where you're coming from. I think when you were mentioning that, I was like excited to jump in because I also thought, what's the implicit thing that you're trying to imply when you ask such a question? Like how many times do you go to McDonald's? Um, because when you look at McDonald's, if you order like a filet meal, or sorry, a McChicken meal, it's like five bucks. 
Now when you go to a noodle store, it's about like four plus. So actually, I think the difference is not so much. But honestly, I would prefer eating McDonald's over a bowl of noodles. Okay. Yeah. So I think, I think, but it just shows you a little bit about how entrenched our whole perspective towards the low income spending money might be. Meaning that we think that, oh, McDonald's might be a sense of uh, a little bit more expensive, even if it's 70 cents or 80 cents difference. Um, why are you doing that mm. more often than not? Yeah, I think that shows us what are the narratives that we internalize. Yeah. Yeah, and do we see on a very objective lens in which actually in terms of price-wise, they are not too different. Yeah, but it also has to do with the overall issue of inflation, right? As in, when you talk about like the noodles, like like that is also, I mean, that is also added level of like things are more expensive. Like it's so complicated, right? It's like, you know, in, uh, in America, like for... Like the whole idea of that whole fast food nation kind of thing. And then certain groups in, in America are more predisposed to like obesity because fast food is so cheap uh, in, over there. And then they just eat a lot of fast food versus like nutritional food is expensive. Uh, not that I'm saying that the noodles that you order is nutritional. Lah, but yeah, I'm just saying that it's a very complicated issue, I feel. Like it's not so straightforward. And like probably they probably cook like six days of the week and they want to have that one treat there's no easy answers to, to this lah. yeah yeah it sounds like we're asking more questions rather than giving answers which is perfectly fine because if at the end of the day um, listeners hear it and they have a very different viewpoint or they have an answer to our question then that's perfect right mm. yeah okay would you like to move on from this mobility and immobility thing. Okay, so I think at, at this uh, segue, before I, I go into some of the major narratives that she's talking about, which is about inequality, poverty, meritocracy. Um, yeah, I think she's mostly covering about meritocracy in this chapter. Um, we, I also want to talk a little bit about um, narratives, like the role of narratives. Yeah, so I think in particular with meritocracy, that is like the national narrative that we have kind of put in place, I don't know, from towards the start of independence. Um, and, and it's still going strong 50 years plus on. Lah. Yeah, so I think the other thing that we need to take caution to is that um, it is fair, I feel, that it's fair for governments to use narratives. Um, yeah, like I don't think we can say that governments should not use narratives because narratives are important to bring people together, to bring um, people of different perspectives, different places together. Um, And I'm sure all nations use narratives in different ways. I mean, if you look at Trump now, his main narrative is make America great again. Uh, Or, um, okay, I I can't really think of any other yeah, or even like the whole American dream idea, or even if like you look at a city, like New York City is a place of dreams, even though there are tens and thousands of people who go there and don't actually fulfill their dreams, but they go there because they believe in the narrative that there is that potential for like one out of like 1,000 for you to make it there. Yeah, so I don't think narratives are um, entirely bad. So that's where I also struggle with because I also see that uh, governments or like sectors or whatever is need narratives to push something forward. So I think it's, so I think the struggle is do the structures come alongside the narratives? 
uh, to fulfill what the narrative is actually saying. Hey guys, Dom here. This is the end of the episode as we have decided to split the later half of the recording to the next episode where we dive deeper into meritocracy. We think that the topics discussed in this episode provides an introduction to the next, so it would be good for them to have their own airtime. Apologies for the abrupt cut. Bye! You've just listened to another episode of Social Work Made Accessible. We would love to hear your thoughts on anything that we've shared. You can reach us at swmadeaccessible at gmail.com or drop us a follow and a DM at swmadeaccessible on Instagram. And don't forget to join us in the next episode.